this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 36, our review of the July 7 Intercept Pharmaceuticals press release announcing the newly compiled data for obetacolic acid, or OCA, in the treatment of Nash fibrosis. This update includes a reanalysis of efficacy data and a much larger patient pool for analysis of safety data, including almost 1,000 patients who've been taking OCA for four years. It also announces Intercept's intention to file a revised new drug application later this year. This concluding conversation asks whether the data in the Regenerate reanalysis is likely to be sufficient to get a beta-colic acid approved. The consensus is probably yes. And what it will mean for the entire community of fatty liver stakeholders if it does so. The consensus is a lot. Really, a lot. Listen for everybody's details and specific comments. With this new press release comes the realistic possibility that the fatty liver community might find ourselves with not one, but two approved medicines by the end of 2023. This would be a remarkable step forward that would create market interest, drive funding for drug development and provider education, and generally create a new, much brighter environment for NAFL diagnosis, treatment, and management. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Stephen Harrison. On July the 7th, 2022, Intercept pressed that they announced positive data in fibrosis due to NASH from a new analysis of its phase three regenerate study of a beta-colic acid. And there were four top line bullet points that Intercept wanted to make. And I'm just going to read them and then we'll talk about specifically some of the data. Number one, the 25 milligram dose of a beta-colic acid met the agreed primary endpoint of improvement in liver fibrosis without worsening of NASH at 18 months. And the p-value was highly significant. It was less than 0.0001. For those of you that aren't counting, that's three zeros and a one. And that was consistent with the original regenerate analysis. Point two, the 25 milligram dose of abetacolic acid demonstrated double the response rate in reduction of liver fibrosis without worsening of NASH versus placebo. Number three, this data set includes larger and more robust safety database of 2,477 patients with nearly 1,000 on study drug for four years. Number four, intercept to resubmit a new drug application. So they're going to refile an NDA in liver fibrosis due to NASH. A pre-submission meeting with the FDA is scheduled later this month. So there you have it. That's their main bullet points. Now, just to dive into this a little bit, and then I want to, maybe we'll um, we'll take this section by section. One thing we didn't talk about today was the serotic trial, the reverse trial. That's complete. We haven't seen results from that. I think it would be incredibly important to have the safety tolerability profile of those 900 patients, you know, in in addition, because I think that will help us. Because again, the first FDA approved treatment for this disease, you know, I don't know about you, but there's going to be a lot of well-compensated cirrhotics that are going to want to get put on treatment. Uh (laughs) Jaren Schottenberg. No, I agree. And, um, you know, that's going to make this a pretty complete data set. It'll be important to be uh, reported out soon, hopefully. And, you know, regarding your comment on the on the pruritus, I'm convinced there's uh, there was a high pruritus report in the placebo group. There's something on how you ask and how it's reported that's critical. There will be some discontinuations um, related to it, but I 
think, as you rightfully said, it'll be to be taken that first barrier is going to be so important. And with this data here, in particular with the safety data and the extended data set on long-term exposure, raising no new uh, significant issues, this should be revisited. And I'll be very excited to see what comes out of it. We agree. So I have one experience. I don't think any of you have had Louise references briefly. I have a couple of times on the podcast, which is I've actually discontinued a drug because of paritis. And, and by the way, it was a cancer drug. And they were trying to see how many doses they could limp me through. And I finally said, forget it. I just can't do this anymore. But to get to that point, I had to have a severe itching over, I'm going to guess, 70, 60%, 70% of my body 16 hours of the day, at which point I said, listen, I can't do this. I have a hard time envisioning that you would not approve this drug simply because of the paritis issue. I mean, that's a controllable toxicity, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It would be one thing is you stopped the medicine and the itching didn't go away. Yeah, and it would be, be one thing if you put a ding in, some, in somebody's cardiovascular system in a way that was going to have long-term effects and you did that often enough. But I, I can't see it with paritis. You know, I think at the end of the day, there are going to be, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that this gets a approved second time around. My guess is if you had to hold my feet to the fire, there'll probably be some left and right boundaries around appropriate follow-up of these patients, just, just kind of like we do at PBC. I think the story is not told until we see the cirrhosis safety and tolerability data. Yeah, and I agree. And it's about the planning. But if we're not planning now to roll out, because I think it's really exciting, this is one disease area that I just get excited that once these medications go into the real world, we'll actually get better results because not only you cannot currently, under any trial, place in behavioural therapy into that trial because it would skew the results quite rightly. But the minute you get to the real world, you have support, you have dietary discussions, you can monitor differently, you can do this. So by adding all of the other things that we know work well within certain populations of this disease, we could see the outcome of and resolution increased from 25.2% to maybe 30 or 35% by adding that additional effect, but only if it's delivered in the right way, only if it's supported in the right way. We and the industry have battled so long to get this close. If we do not support the rollout of these medications in the right way and the right pathways, we're doing patients a disservice. And the amount of time and effort that we've put in to add that additional support to do that, we could just reap rewards in the real world. I'm expecting real world evidence to be better than the clinical trials in this disease profile. And just think what it'll do for disease awareness. But I'll end on this note, because I know you're going to go to wrap up in a minute, Roger, a little teaser for when we do come around to the nomenclature debate. If this drug is approved for the treatment of NASH with fibrosis, will it then translate to mash or maffled with fibrosis, or do they have to go back and do another phase three trial? And what does this mean to all the drugs that are currently in phase two B for a NASH indication? Do they now have to delay their phase three trial to go back and do a MAFL trial. So these are some of the interesting conversations that were spun up at the nomenclature meeting, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but they are very interesting and intriguing questions to discuss. That's a great point, Stephen. And as I've been reading some of these studies that have come up from time to time that have said, if you analyze this based on NASH, you get one result, and based on MASH, you get a different result, or NAFL and MAFL. That's been my reaction. It's been so hard to get drugs to the finish line. Why would you do something that risked 
a redefinition of the work he had already done. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if it was easy to get these drugs approved, that would be different. But as we know, it's not. So I, I'm I'm wholeheartedly with you there. Okay, well, close is real simple, all right? 15 months from now. And we're sitting here because something happened with this drug. What happened? Brave one, go first. So let's say the favorable long-term safety data has shifted the momentum of the regulators to approve obidicolic acid based on its efficacy on fibrosis resolution, while it did not show that in the cirrhotic population. And thus, we're going to have a drug in a non-cirrhotic population. Now, there was no safety signal from the cirrhotic population that was disconcerting, and we might use FXRs in a selected patient population with non-cirrhotic advanced NASH. Is one option uh, of reading the crystal ball. Sadly, the problem with crystal ball is you only get one read, you know, and then everyone remembers if you blow it. But uh, okay, so that's one. Next. 15 months from now, the field's broader than a beta-colic acid, and we have a phase three readout on efficacy coming in Q4 from resmeterol. So again, we're just being hypothetical. So on, let's assume that meets an efficacy endpoint. The safety and tolerability of that drug have been reported already in 1,200 patients. We'll have the additional 900 to 1,000 from the efficacy trial. So let's say they submit a new drug application and both are approved. So in 15 months, we're looking at two oral therapies approved to the treatment of non-serotic NASH. That would be huge for the field. That would be a tsunami for NASH. That would be unprecedented and something that all of us have been waiting for for the better part, well, at least me, for the better part of two decades. Jorn is, that would take him back to his teenage years. So I'm not sure he was too concerned about Nash as a teenager, but that would be huge, unprecedented. Will that mean that we are done? No, 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 no. We're not done with Nash just because those two, uh, if we're fortunate enough to have both approved or on the market, we're just getting underway. We're really just getting underway. So what I see in 15 months is a huge groundswell of interest in the field, that needle swinging back towards research dollars coming into the space, uh, disease awareness really, really taking off, and patients actually seeing a positive impact. Again, you're not going to cure everybody, but there will be people that we see significant reductions in liver chemistry tests, liver fat, non-invasive assessment, all things pointing to the fact that these drugs are having an impact. And obviously, it'll take a long time before we see you know, what that impact is. We know from hepatitis C, where cure rates are now greater than 90%, it comes down to how many of the population are treated and cured before we can begin to see a drop in liver transplantation, drops in the cost of care of this disease as it burdens our society. We still have a long way to go, but my gosh, in 15 months, if we could be there, how great that would be for the field. Louise Campbell. And I suppose I was going to say some of those same comments, but I I think for me, it was the invigoration of the industry in the context that we will have ochre and yes, possibly resmeterone. And rather like Bisepravir and Talapravir did for the hepatitis C world, we then get a whole host of drugs and people's interest rises and we start to go out and locate. And I think for me and where nurses are going to fit in, it's going to be the location of this disease. It's going to be about the comorbidity management and trying to break down the silos because we're not going to find NASH if we don't break down the silos. If we can locate early fibrosis in our biggest co-diseases, so our 
type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular, then we can really make a big fat dent in this super tsunami with this. And I think we'll have too much to discuss on surfing the national tsunami <laughs> in 15 months and then ongoing with real world data. How exciting could that be? As my people say from your mouth to God's ears, Stephen, the first time I ever talked in public about this disease. The second comment I made that people remembered was the first drug is weather and the second drug is which. You really have a market when you have two drugs. And if you're lucky enough to get two drugs with different modes of action, which is virtually never how it works, then you elevate discussion a whole bunch of levels. I was I was really heartened by this data. I thought, like I said, I thought they set out to present the first thing they presented very conservatively. Here's what we had approved. We think we proved this. There's a whole, as you point out, Stephen and Jorn and Louise, there's a whole bunch we haven't seen yet that could change our impression on that. But I'm with you. I think that this suggests that we, faster than 2025, which is what people had been thinking a little while ago, we may have two drugs with two different modes of action, both investing in education and commercial and that would just be massive. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing Nash Tsunami to drop on Wednesday, July 20th. Please join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>